Hello, it's Anna Perro and Sophie Little here. We run Soundyard and we are the producers of Chris Skinner's Countryside Podcast. We're excited to tell you we've been nominated for an award. It's a public vote, so if you'd like to vote for us, well, that would just be amazing. You can head to norfolkartsawards.org. Look out for Soundyard. We're under the Broadcast and Media Award. And it's such a pleasure putting the show together and listening with you. So let's join Chris and Matthew on High Ash Farm. Chris Skinner's Countryside Podcast with Matthew Gudgeon. Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs> it's one o'clock in the morning. It's the 1st of January. And Rat, my demented terrier, has asked to go out. Because he's seen a fox in the garden. Just listen to this. Rat one side of a bush... The fox, the other. Right, rat, would you come out of that bush? (laughs) The fox is gnarling and gnashing its teeth. That noise is called geckering. And it's baring its teeth and gnarling and and gnashing at rat. (laughs) Because he's cornered it in my shrubbery. (laughs) Oh, dear. I'm in a dressing gown. And the wind's blowing a hoolie. Come on. Would you come out? <laughs> I'm not going to walk into that shrubbery. I've got bare feet. <laughs> if anybody's got any ideas, <laughs> you can write. <laughs> You can write in. (laughs) Right, that is it. I'm going to have to walk on to the shrubbery with bare feet and try and grab a terrier, which will be shortly for sale. (laughs) No. I've now got wet feet and there's holly nearby. Here. Rat, out. Come on. It's gone quiet. There's a standoff, I think. I'm only two feet, three feet from the dreaded terrier. And I think... I'm not sure. No, I, I thought the fox had legged it, but it hasn't. Right, would you come here? Come on, out. Uh, 
soaking wet feet. Would you come here? Come on, here, out. Shouting and swearing at each other. Ah, that was a hopeful sound. I think the fox has just legged it and has run off out of my shrubbery with <laughs> rat behind it. Now, that's how you start the new year off. Hopefully, he won't catch up with that fox. They're way too quick. Um, the lucky thing is, I pinned the end door open because it's a bit breezy, and I nearly got locked out of my own house. <laughs> uh, dear. Right, we've just got to wait for him to come back now. Um, there'll be a few choice words, so... I'm going to turn the microphone off now because you won't want to hear what I'm going to say. <laughs> oh dear. I made it back indoors. It's warm. I've got wet feet. <sighs> I'm just going to sit and wait. <laughs> See you soon. muddy and wet. <laughs> Welcome to another Countryside podcast with Chris Skinner, Norfolk farmer and nature lover who invites us here most weeks for a podcast and uh, it's a beautiful sunny morning, low sun, lovely January morning and it's the first of a new year, 2024 now and uh, we've sloshed through the mud because it's been raining so much Chris hasn't it? Yes and there's more rain forecast for us shortly although it's going to turn colder so you can either have the cold or the wet whichever is your choice although we don't have a choice with nature. Uh, anyway we're standing on one of the high spots of High Ash Farm and uh, which I normally say is at Caestus and Edmund just a couple of miles south of Norwich but we're in Arming Hall this morning and the church is just peeping up through the trees just oh, through there, Arming Hall Church so we are about 150 yards um, that will be southwest of Arming Hall Church, we're standing on Boudicca Way, there's the big footpath sign and that goes right down the eastern side of the farm lovely medieval church there, I can see the Flint Tower it just sits in the in the um, countryside beautifully that yes and then we turn around the other way and just through the hedge is a panoramic view of about half of high ash farm there with two of the valleys and hills in front of us and they were running like a river yesterday uh, and the 
the soil at the bottom of the valleys has chalk underneath, so it's very porous, and the water has just disappeared as though somebody's pulled a plug out of the bath and it's gone down into the aquifer, exactly what we wanted to happen. The river, though, on a neighbouring property, the Taz, is, is completely flooded out onto the surrounding fields. Yes, my grandfather's old farm down there at Marksall, uh, where my father was born, and it's doing exactly what it should do. It's uh, called the water meadows down there, and it floods at this time of the year, and so kind of stalls the water before it courses a bit further down into the river Yare, and it can be held up, if necessary, with some sluices at Lakenham, close to the old Cock public house there at Lakenham, and uh, the, the water's held up artificially, and that makes the water back up over those water meadows, otherwise it would overwhelm the, the river Yare, uh, further downstream and uh, so they're doing exactly what they're meant to do and again this soil um, is very fertile in those river valleys it's peat uh, with some sort of alluvial content in it as well but underneath that is a 30 foot layer of pure gravel and that's very porous and beneath that is chalk and um, that again is porous and so we're recharging the aquifers to make up for the last two summers where it's been incredibly dry. Anyway, a little bit, that's a bit of the history. And this is a lovely walkway. It's called Hallback Lane, Matthew, and it forms the northern boundary of High Ash. And there's some venerable old trees here. Just look at this fellow here. It's a massive oak tree and a big scar right down the side where it got struck by lightning about 30 years ago. And gradually the tree is healing up both sides to cover that incredible scar which goes right up to the crown of the tree that's a wonderful gnarled old tree it is it? yes it, it just makes me smile because it can tell so many stories it it looks out over the farm and it would have actually seen oxen and certainly horses ploughing the fields when it was a youngster and so much has changed in our countryside and um, we haven't got much further to walk to find this week's subject, which is right in front of us, coming up on the left, and it's elms this morning. I thought all the elms had died. Yes, they most of them have, and I'll show you an example of dead elms. And all over the farm, it was by far the commonest tree. Um, they were English elms, and there are about four species that are easy to identify. That's the English elm, and that's the one John Constable made very, very famous in his painting called The Cornfield, and I think it was in 1826 he did that, and quite remarkable. And it kind of, I suppose, epitomises the English landscape, and he painted that, and this big billowing crown on top of it, um, with lots of leaves on. The leaves are unusual on elm trees because one side half of the leaf is longer than the other half, so it kind of laps over, and all the elms are like that. So you've got the common or English elm as one, a little bit smaller one is called the witch elm. And uh, that's all twisted and gnarled, rather like that oak tree we looked at. Then you've got smooth-leaved elms. And then the fourth one is the Dutch elm. But really nothing to do with 
the Dutch elm disease, which is a bit of a misnomer, really, because it wasn't discovered in Holland, and <laughs> um, it's got nothing to do with Dutch elms either, because uh, Dutch elm disease affects all the species of elms in some form or other. And 50 but, years ago, that was big news, wasn't oh, it? Oh, right across the, the world, really, particularly in this country. Um, there's, there's elms over in Asia, different species of elms, uh, and they're all susceptible to Dutch elm disease, but it's spread by a beetle. The beetle itself doesn't do any harm whatsoever, but it's the fungus that the beetles carry with them when they fly. Now, in the 1960s, it kind of a new strain of the fungus developed, and it was incredibly virulent. It was sort of first identified properly in France in about 1918, but it wasn't a very virulent fungus back then, and about 20% of all English and native elms were killed, some only partially killed, and elms have this habit of suckering out from the trunk or the base and regrowing, and so it wasn't disastrous, not until the 60s, when this new sort of uh, fungus sort of strain developed and absolutely went right through the elm population and devastated the ones at the farm. In a few minutes we'll move to the other side of High Ash Farm and I'll show you some of the giant elms that were left and a new one that we've planted. But this is the largest elm on the farm. This tree by the side of the lane. Yes. Here. Now, I'll give you an idea how big it is. I'm going to try and put my arms around the trunk and there's, what, about... A couple of foot left, yes, probably. Yeah, yeah, another 20 inches. So that means it's around. about uh, eight feet round the trunk at the moment. And it's a good straight bowl uh, up to about 20 feet. And then you start to get that billowing crown. I don't think there's any sign of the leaves left on the ground. They've all gone back into the soil with the high worm population. And here. the roots seem to go straight down in the base there. Yes. Oh, it's really well rooted. And it's really lovely. as a little bit of ivy just on the first 15 or 20 feet, Matthew. And that might help to deter those beetles. They don't fly very far, uh, but the worst thing is they carry this fungus and it affects the water uh, gathering capacity of the tree. So the little water sort of... Um, vascules you can call them get blocked up and uh, the tree loses its ability to get water up into the crown so the tree you get patches of leaves dying and then those leaves drop off and then the fungus takes over and uh, just overwhelms the tree. It can't just be that this has got ivy that this has survived there must no, be some other reason. There, and that's what we're trying to find out we think there's some resistance beginning to develop because if we just look on the other side of the track here and just walk through the mud a little bit more, um, there's a, a lovely old, uh, another a lovely oak tree there. And this is what we're looking at here. And this is typical of Dutch elm. That one's got to about 25 years old and the bark's already peeled off. And it, it's just a skeleton. Just a bad way, really, yes. isn't it? Yes, yeah. and the same with that one. So you kind of start to get some hope that some of those young elms are going to survive. And if you follow that one up to the crown, there's the bark off at the top where the woodpeckers have been after those beetles. And there's some even bigger specimens if we walk just back here a little bit. 
uh, that are also doomed. <laughs> uh, and so it's some hope, with fingers crossed, that quite a number of these elms... Oh, it's just through there, the other side of that venerable old ash tree. Can you see? Oh, yes. Just through there with the bark, the bark off, peeling off. All off, all the way up to the crown. And uh, so that's where the hope lies, that some resistance, because elms are unusual. They come into flower, which is unusual, uh, sort of bright pink little rosettes of flowers in February and March. And once they're pollinated, um, they produce seeds, a little winged seed in a circle with a little notch on it, and the seed is bang in the centre of that. And that lands on the ground. And a lot of botanists think uh, we're being sworn at by a, a great tit at the moment. Oh, there he is, right above our head. <laughs> Paris Major. Just swearing away. What are you what are you doing here? Yes, what are you doing here? This is my territory. <laughs> really lovely. Um, so uh, the seeds drop on the ground in about June, July time. And as I said, a lot of botanists believe they're sterile. But what happens is, unless they drop on bare ground, they won't germinate. And their germination its ability is so short, it only lasts about a day or two or three days. After that, they won't germinate. So they're really odd seeds. So elms get themselves about the countryside by something called suckering, where you'll have an elm tree like this one, and then a few feet away, you get a little sapling growing up, and that's come off the roots. And again, there, there, and there, and all the way down, and it almost forms hedges, and that's the way it gets itself. So it takes thousands of years to get across the British Isles, obviously. So they rhizomes? Uh, they're light rhizomes, but they're roots. It's just a normal habit that elm trees seem to have. Just because they don't seem to seed themselves very successfully, most of the elms you'll see that are left have come from um, the, the old parent trees which died and got felled and uh, long since forgotten. And that's the thing why I brought you here this morning. Elm trees have almost become a memory for people. They, you just don't see them, so they don't feature in our new generation's life, if you like. They never were there to start with. Uh, you know, anybody who's 30, 40, 50 years old won't know what an elm is or the shape it was or how important it was to some of our butterfly species, like um, the, one of the... the um, hair streak species of butterflies with a W on the underside of the wing. It's called the white letter hair streak butterfly and that's almost exterminated because it's lost its food plant uh, which is elm. So there we are, a little bit of history. So we're going to hop back in the truck and go and, fingers crossed, uh, see the new generation of elms that have been bred to be resistant. Off we go. Got in the car and, and come, you know, probably 10 minutes at least because uh, the direct routes aren't really open to us today. <laughs> no, Matthew, it would have been quite a walk to go from one elm tree on the northern side of High Ash Farm to this new 
version of elm trees, which I'm quite excited about. Uh, we're just going to be visiting it in a minute, but all the way down here are elms that have lost their bark. Uh, there's one laying on the ground there. Quite nice, it returns to the soil. Two youngsters there, um, both about, what, 20 feet tall? and lost their bark already. So they seem to get to that stage of 20 years old and then succumb once again to that virulent fungus. Now, the field behind us is quite interesting. Uh, certainly the archaeologists are really interested in it. It's got a particular name. It's called Elm Bank. And right through my childhood, there was a massive, and I mean massive, row of elms there and here's a photograph of me standing at the top of the hill looking we are standing just there and they're two 120 foot tall English elms all gone all gone uh, they were felled in 1975 the stumps remained and somebody came uh, with a chainsaw that didn't have a chain saw on it it had an auger and he drilled down beneath each of the trees and he, he used a kilo of dynamite under each one it sort of quite laid back about it all and blew them out uh, and they went up into the sky these tiny little dots and landed all over this field i'll never forget it and uh, that's how we got rid of the stumps but it was so sad uh, they were almost like brothers to me and the chap that originally felled them his name was mike watts he was a timber merchant at dunstan in the neighboring village just south of norwich and he cut one of them down it was 29 feet 6 inches circumference around the trunk which made it about what nine and a half nearly 10 feet through the trunk and they made some tables from it mostly um, elm trees because they the wood lasts quite well underground and this is why it's a bit of a sort of somber tree i suppose um they're used for coffin building which is really sad and why that's happened i don't know but uh, elms are just beautiful trees and i miss them terribly so my children for my 70th birthday have bought me this tree which we're just walking up to it's a new variety um, of elmus which is the scientific name got pheasant just running through there just disturbed him and if we walk in a little bit I've planted it dead in line with this old bank and the reason the archaeologists are interested in it because bank if you think about the word it's somewhere you keep your money Oh. And they think that that's quite an interesting site. There's been quite a number of coins found on the field behind us. And uh, so this is, the, this is the new tree, Matthew. This is my 70th birthday present from my children. <laughs> well, happy birthday, but it was a few years ago. It was now, a few it? years ago, and I need to now slacken off the little band. And it is absolutely thriving. Ramrod straight, isn't it? It, it is. Must it's, be like 20 feet now. It, it's a good 20 feet, yes. I think it will see me out, but it just makes me smile. So they say you plant a tree for the next generation to enjoy. And uh, I hope my children will come back and sort of remember me. <laughs> not, not too sombre because uh, I, I love laughter and sort of the, the funny side of life and this 
is beautiful and it reminds me of the trees in this corner of this area of Fox's Grove. The elms, Matthew, were so close together that you could hardly squeeze between the trunks. And I just remember as a youngster, I mean, I never thought anything would happen to them. And then in the 1960s onwards through to the 70s, that devastating fungus came and virtually wiped out all the elms here. So where, where we're standing here, where your new elm is, yes. the, the, it was thick Absolutely. with very mature trees. This is the trees. exact spot where these mature trees were so thick uh, that you couldn't really squeeze through them. I mean, it was impenetrable. And they were hundreds of years old? They were hundreds of years old. That, that giant elm that I described that got blown out with dynamite, the stump was just left in the middle of a field, really. And uh, the, the fella that took it down, the lumberjack, um, he had great difficulty, and timber merchants will know exactly this. He took a, what's called a front out of the tree, he had a 50-inch chainsaw bar, and he, he cut right through. The tree was so perfectly balanced that it was left on a little hinge, and he cut through that, and the tree still stood for another five minutes, having been cut completely through. It was so absolutely perpendicular, and then it went, and you could hear the crash from a huge distance, and the trunk could only be cut into 10-foot lengths because even the crane that came to lift it uh, struggled, and the lorry couldn't get it off the field. It's, it's, the back wheels just sunk in with Did the weight. Did you count the rings? Uh, no, I didn't. That's the thing with elms. They are really difficult, but we estimated it to be about 450 years old, so it would have seen unbelievable sights when you go back in here history and that's the thing that I'm interested in most about the countryside. Lots of people get excited about archaeology and the former inhabitants, the Saxons, the Romans, the Neolithic people and I am equally interested in what's called the living heritage and that's the bit that fires me up. Got my hands around this tree, it's a wonderful feeling to think and hope as long as nothing else falls on it it's got its own little clearing with blue sky above to, to grow what's to stop this succumbing though to those beetles and dutch elm yes well it's disease resistant matthew it's called new horizon ulmus and so it's been bred to be completely resistant to that particular strain of fungus so fingers crossed this tree will be here when both you and i perhaps be pushing up the daisies <laughs> I think we ought to go and answer some questions because uh, you've yes. had another bumper postbag. We have. You? I think there's more questions than answers this morning. <laughs> <laughs> that, that prompts me to hum a song, but I won't. <laughs> Best not. Well, we've picked a terrific morning to come and visit Chris Skinner on this current edition of the podcast because the sun is uh, shining and uh, although we've had some very dodgy weather recently it's a, it's a lovely morning with some blue sky and uh, I think it's high time we had a look at some of the things that people are saying and, and coming through to you on the uh, email chris at countrysidepodcast.co.uk Bridget Gardner who lives in the or nearby really in the south of Norwich who's also a sponsor of the farm uh, walks. And uh, I walked the paths at 8am on Boxing Day on the farm. It was a beautifully bright morning. As I was passing 
uh, a tree sculpture you've got on the farm. I heard two skylarks over the field on the left hovering. Is this too early, though, to see them? Matthew, accidentally we bumped into the Skylarks at High Ash Farm on the other side of the, the farm on last week's uh, podcast and I explained what they were doing. They're flocking up at this time of the year and pairing up as well. And that's why we heard the singing, which is on the last week's podcast. You managed to record some very well indeed. Um, and it's quite normal for them. And remember, many birds are now in full breed plumage particularly our waterfowl birds like mallard sporting their emerald green heads and the females as well and they're all paired up a lot of the corvid species as well certainly jackdaws and rooks are all paired up or are pairing up at the moment and skylarks are no exception to the rule so what you saw is probably a pair they're already sort of forming a territory broken away from the big flocks of skylarks and when, once you've got a, a mate you will go and often find your own territory and that spot of the farm um, which is called Cantley Hill is quite high up there is an ideal spot to see and hear Skylark. Here's a sound that's been sent in uh, via email by Maggie Quinn. And Maggie writes, currently, the bird that you can hear is waking me up at 5am. It's still dark. Although I'm in the city, the street lines are, lights are dimmed until 6 o'clock, so minimal light pollution. On recording, it can hear a response from another bird in the distance, but it's not picked up on the recording. By 7 o'clock, it's all over, and I'd be grateful if you could identify the bird. <laughs> yes, well, the robin there is guilty as charged. It's a perfect recording of a robin and it's setting up its territory but instead of fisticuffs there's a good lessons for humanity here <laughs> they're sorting out their territories which we can't see it's invisible it's not necessarily the boundary of your garden or um, any particular area but a male robin will set up the territory and defend it by singing occasionally male robins will meet at the boundary of their territories that remember they're early nesters you can have eggs in the nest certainly at the end of january in a mild winter and all the members of the thrush family will be doing the same blackbirds in particular early nesters song thrushes to missile thrush to very very early nesters and the two migratory species of thrush which we have here in the country redwing and fieldfares they'll go back to their territories in um, western europe so uh, that's it so definitely a robin i listen carefully and it's another robin in another territory aren't Answering back, but they're just sorting out in a very gentlemanly way. Thanks for the recording, Maggie. And hello to Frederick Rappolt, who sent us a note to say, uh, a couple of podcasts back, Chris, you mentioned you had dozens of bird boxes scattered over the yard and stabling area. I have a couple of boxes in my garden, and the blue tits are in and out already, as I think they may be preparing already for laying. I really don't want to disturb them to clean the boxes out, as the RSPB suggests, to get rid of ticks and lice, but the, it, it's... 
maybe enduring the, the process, old nesting material, of course, builds up. So the question is, would it be OK to leave it as it's not uh, as it is and not clean them out? Yes, uh, I've got... I, my target was one nest box per acre of high ash farm, 640 in total, and uh, I've still got over 600 nest boxes of various shapes and sizes. The smallest ones are for solitary bees to nest in, and the largest ones, without doubt, for barn owls. And in general, I don't clean them out. Uh, generally, with um, the tip boxes, the material will build up a little bit, but uh, birds at this time of the year will go in, take fresh nesting material in quite shortly, and they're just also using the boxes. Remember, it's still the coldest time of the year, what we call the hungry gap as well when birds are searching around looking for food so they need somewhere warm at night and nest boxes are ideal generally i leave them until they get quite full and then i'll generally replace the whole nest box with a fresh one in a similar area Ron, who lives in Old Buckingham, was enjoying our chat about mistletoe just before Christmas, and he's sent us a photograph of some of his mistletoe in one of a, a, one of his local trees, and, and it's a perfect sphere. And Ron says, how does it grow to this shape, which almost seems unreal in its symmetry? Yes, it does, and we noticed that when we visited the mistletoe down Piggott Lane at Framingham Piggott, just in the village next to the farm, and all the mistletoe clumps up in the trees were the same shape, spherical, so... Uh, perfect description of the growth and the reason it's that shape is mistletoe grows out in every direction from its rooting point and it grows in an equal amount each year and each of the little growth points divides into two uh, equally and so you can actually count the age of mistletoe by counting back those growth points where you get a pair of leaves and then a joint and then another pair of leaves and you can age mistletoe because it reproduces exactly uh, from the original growth in the equal direction. So it ends up as a complete sphere. Well spotted. Well done, Ron. And uh, Ken Gillingham, or maybe Gillingham, I don't know which, but Ken, thank you for your email. Um, he's really enjoying your podcast, uh, Chris, with trusty sidekicks Rat and Matthew. Yes, which are you? I, I'm <laughs> the sec- troublesome one, aren't you? Second billing, I think. <laughs> um, and Ken has sent us a photo of a wren sitting motionless on his lawn. He was raking up dead leaves and came across the bird. It didn't appear to be injured, so I waved my hand in front of uh, the wren's face, but it just sat very still, and I stopped raking, moved away to work elsewhere in the garden, returned a quarter of an hour later, and the wren had gone. Is this motionless approach a defence mechanism? Uh, No, not in this case. Uh, There are a few birds that adopt this uh, posture. The the most extreme one, uh, birds that we used to have at the farm here, they were guinea fowl. And if you scared them or made a really loud noise, they, they would lay on their side and feign death. In this case, the wren had almost certainly flown into an obstacle almost certainly a window hadn't broken its neck but became completely traumatized and stunned and it was like semi-consciousness and I have seen this in 
bird life before. Other birds can feign injury as well, but it, that's a sort of defence mechanism to protect the youngsters. Um, one bird that immediately springs to mind would be lapwing, when they've got young uh, in the nest or egg laying on the ground and the females incubating the eggs, the male lapwing will run along the ground with one wing, which is obviously broken, to deter the predator, in this case probably a human, away from the nest. But quite often I've seen this with birds that fly into glass, and in this case almost certainly the wren had stunned itself and it's lucky to be alive and probably made a safe escape. Yeah. Sounds like a happy ending anyway, and uh, we're almost ready to get towards our ending on this week's podcast. But uh, finally we go to Wendy, Wendy Bylet, who is our what, whatever did the Romans do for us correspondent. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Wendy's very knowledgeable with the Roman occupation of East Anglia. And she queried last week about whether Caister here near Norwich is the Roman capital of east of England or Colchester where she used to live um, and we sort of fudged it by saying well Colchester isn't properly in the east of England it's near London isn't it? <laughs> yes but, we did it was we... set up as a canton but, uh, but which is a Roman garrison divisions if you like. Wendy says um, Colchester was used as a retirement village for Roman veterans from about AD 49 and that is why the Norfolk girl Bodicea was so successful when she took over. Yes because they were all retired and they'd probably forgotten how to to fight and give a good account of themselves that's how she was able to overtake uh, Colchester Uh, but the same didn't happen here at Caestus and Edmund although we've got the walk to remind us and remember that this was the Iceni capital and Boudicca was the Iceni queen. Uh, we think she was at Caestus and Edmund here because there's lots of Iron Age remnants and the beautiful little Iceni coins which we sometimes find about the size of your little fingernail in gold or silver reminds us of generations and occupations that have been and gone and forgotten about apart from the artefacts that they left behind. Chris's email address for future episodes of this podcast is quite simply chris at countrysidepodcast.co.uk. But all that's left to say now is, friends, Roman countrymen, thank you for lending us your ears this week. <laughs> Indeed, and thank you for venturing out to the wilds of High Ash Farm, Matthew, for yet another episode. It's always great fun and sharing the countryside that we all have to enjoy, especially on a morning like this. I can feel the warmth coming through from the sun as it creeps a little bit higher each day. This is a Sound Yard production. Music is by Tom Harris. 